Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Professor Shoshana Zuboff. Professor Shoshana Zuboff. That's a nice name to say. Why are you laughing? No, I was laughing at your dance. The yeah. dance? Yeah. Professor Shoshana Zuboff. Yeah. So nice to say. And also, I wondered if it was sexist of me to say how beautiful her hair was. Yeah, but you, you said charming, which is also which is neutral. Neutral. And also, don't you remember when that guy came on? Luke Kemp. Oh, yeah, yeah. I basically had to be pulled off him. I didn't sexualise him. Did I sexualise him? I mean, a little bit. I objectified him. In a sexual way? I made an object of him. <laughs> of Luke Isn't Kemp. it weird that that's object is sexual? Yeah, why would you do that why to would an you, object? Why would that make someone sexy? It's the last thing it's you want. It's the wanna... opposite, isn't it? Well, I suppose what it means is <laughs> you're looking at them, only, you're eliminating their agency and sentience. You're like, hmm, you could be used for this, isn't it? There's an objectification that I think happens beyond sexualization. I think that's the objectification of people to just see them as commodities, to see them just as workers. Yeah. What about I'll... friendship? Some people think if you're <clears> just being used as a therapist sometimes. Don't they? Is people doing that to you? Don't know, maybe. I don't think so, Jen. Who would do it? <laughs> I'm, apparently, I'm good at giving advice. All right, a lot of people call me for advice. Who? Who? My family and my friends. What, your sister? I'm the person, yeah. What are they saying? Jen, They're Jen. Like, I'm struggling with this decision. What do you think? And I'm what do you say? Very neutral. You're neutral? I get it from my dad. My dad said, never take sides, ever. Bloody hell. In any, anyone's issues. Well, I suppose. Yeah, and my mum's actually the same. She's like, never. She's a bit more emotional, take sides. They even though they're divorced. So Everyone says never take sides <laughs> yeah. between me and your dad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Blimey, that's pretty heavy, Jen, in, in its way. There's a heavy bit of information because I did take go. the old side. Yeah, no, no, no. Don't take because the Because that's your biases coming out. That your friend could be wrong. They might need to chill for a bit. And Well, I do remember that there's a book come out recently by a monk which was called I Might Be Wrong because Fern talked about it in her um, podcast. Shoshana Zuboff's going to be talking about, you know, she's, listen, this is Professor Emeritus at the Harvard Business School. Listen, she's written three books, one of which is considered the Das Kapital of our age, the age of surveillance capitalism, meaning it offers a critique of something and I suppose suggests what potential alternatives might be. Is that what Das Kapital is? It's a critique of capitalism for the industrial age and this is a critique of technocracies. Is that what it is? Yeah, I guess so. Have you read it? No. Thanks for you going to so much trouble. <laughs> now, um, tell us about your private... Well, firstly... My priorities. When, your private life. Oh, <laughs> I went for a run. Well done. Thanks. You all right? Did you hurt yourself? No, of course not. You look not. slim. You've, not put, you've stayed exactly the same. I stay exactly the same way. I fluctuate by two pounds. I don't think I've ever seen you be any different, even when I see pictures <laughs> of you as a child on WhatsApp. I was different when I first started working for you. you like I was a stone again? heavier. Right. Yeah. I had a squidgier face. It was a bit more squishy. I hated it. Now it's more like a trowel. <laughs> you know, like a trowel. I with... prefer that. I'm actually going to take that as a compliment. <laughs> trowel. You know, I like a little... I prefer a trowel face than a big squidge face. What do you think? I have a squidge face? You no, know, you're more trowel. <laughs> also a trowel. Yeah. We're a couple of trowel faces digging our way through life, Jen, you and I. <laughs> All right, anyway, look. For, as well as having a lovely name, Shoshana Zuboff, Professor Shoshana Zuboff. God, it's a really nice lot of noises, isn't it? Stop thinking about her hair. I was again, actually, yeah. <laughs> Professor, because I like, I, I like nice thick hair, do you? Yeah, I've got some, don't I? Yeah, you have lovely thick red hair. Yeah. Would we call that red? Yes. What, do you, what, is it, what do people want to do with red hair? Like, not red hair, but thick hair. Is it they want to twist it into a sort of, like, a, a mane? My friend and then used to do that. Bite down in it? No, he used to twist it and pull it. He was gay, so it wasn't a weird thing. You don't want to pull the person's hair, do you? But do you bite want to bite it. the hair? No, because hair's not nice to bite. No one <laughs> likes hair in their mouth. No. 
No. No. Okay. <laughs> now time for comments. All right. So here's some comments on the Fern Cotton episode we recently made with lovely Fern. Little Tank. I listened to this last night. Great conversation. I saw a lot of my own story in what Fern was saying. She's not alone in all of that. My and all of that my point of awakening was when my anxiety went from being in the back seat to pushing me out of the way and taking the wheel yeah i know you're saying there little tank so i had to break into pieces to regroup better than i was brilliant that's necessary i always thought i was spiritual but until my full-on meltdown i was a spiritual bypasser self-awareness is a double-edged sword empowering yet hard as fuck great episode russell nice thank you for that lovely feedback and here's a listener shout out from janine cobb listen to shout outs I thought the most recent episodes with Gabon, the most recent episode with Gabon Matty was fantastic. I particularly enjoyed his reframing of every disillusionment as seeing a new reality. I thought this was wonderful. Did you like that, Jen? That was one of my favourite bits too. Because you got disillusioned first with the Nazis. Yeah, naturally. Like, naturally. <laughs> These Nazis, oh, hang on a minute, they're not that nice. Yeah. Then it was, what, the communists? Then I think he said... Then there's Zionism. Zionism. He's got disillusioned with a lot of things, yeah. but more disillusionments may yet come. What? For all of us. Oh. Depends what the illusions are. <laughs> I thought this was wonderful. Sometimes I get so bogged down with disillusionment, I feel overwhelmed and disempowered. Don't worry, Janine Cobb. This new perspective has helped me to see it as a powerful force. You're going to be okay. Oh, she knows that already. She's fine. She's solved that problem. All right. There's, I'm going to try and find some advice I could get right out of this and see if you are good at advice. Andre Weisner, your interview with Ben Shapiro is without doubt the finest non-porno post-hitchings encounter between two human beings. Non-porno? <laughs> I feel yes. like they could have been promo, but they put porno. Although maybe unless porno, you know, porno is popular. It's yeah. the most, one of the most popular things online, isn't it? Yeah, that's someone else said that to me earlier today as well. Well, it is. Sports, good. Movies, Disney mm. Plus, that's good. Yeah. Porno, mm. post-hitchings encounter between two human beings I've ever seen on the internet. No, I think he does mean porno. It was illuminating, fascinating, and the two of you shone in beauty. You are an unbelievably gifted interviewer. That's me he's talking to there, Jen. And brought forth something live in situ that was serene and gracious, fulfilling and deeply humanising. An epic piece of work you did. Thank you. And Ben, so much for cheering me up. Best wishes from Cape Town Prison. I added prison just for a laugh. Cape Town. So that's... um. That's a lovely compliment, isn't it? He doesn't need advice. No. But hold on, see, see. No All one right. needs advice. All right, what about this person? They've, oh, no. Right, this is Little Tank. We'll go back to it. I feel my anxiety is going from the back seat yeah. to um, taking the wheel. What should I do, Jen? Well, as Ian McGillicrist said, sometimes you don't have to do anything. You just have to let it settle. That's typical neutral advice. Don't do anything. Don't act on the anxiety because you'll be blinded by it. And <sighs> you it's must too, never too act Too much adrenaline. It. That's your adrenal glands doing stuff. I you can't trust them. them. The lovely little... Are they good glands or bad glands? The adrenal glands. <laughs> they Depends what you need them for. <laughs> Cross-sections, Jen? Yay no. on that. All right. <laughs> it's a hard no on those little guys. Okay, so shall we get into Shoshana Zuboff? Do you want to promote your tour? Oh, yeah. Come and see me on tour. I'm ever so good at comedy, and I'll be doing some in a variety of places, particularly, for example, and uh, not exclusively... Newcastle, Hull, Nottingham, Bristol, Glasgow, all of these places. So have a little clink. <laughs> what, Jen? <laughs> what word were you hoping for? <laughs> Either click or link. Have a little clink. <laughs> That'd be better, wouldn't it? Have a clink. Why didn't it get shortened to clink? Clink. Just clink and you'll get tickets. 
Clink for tickets. Clink. Yeah. Actually, I'm a pioneer, am I, Jim? <laughs> Actually, they, hey, you made me feel better then, so that was good advice. Sometimes I'm nice. Clink. I hope you're not going to still be talking about that black apple. I do like my black apple. I didn't mention it on this. I mentioned the run instead of the apple. Right. Do you, what, you in your mind have got things you're going to mention, have you? No, or but I thought, don't mention the, the apple again. Because I'm not good. I've already told you about it. I can't tell you. Like, you've it's not, a new thing. You've not seen the black apple in the meanwhile because you've been here overnight, as I can see yeah. from the mezzanine floor. <laughs> yeah, it's too face poking up. Disgusting. It looks like this. I didn't notice there. that. And I thought it looks you like might someone's hate broken it. in who can't cope with reality. The cat woke me up this morning at Which like one? 6 a.m. Well, one knocked at the door last night. Knocked? <laughs> it went, meh. I don't have fists. Yeah, but I used his mouth. It <laughs> did a mouth knock. What do you mean? Used the mouth and went, meh. You went, meh. Yeah. Do you know who it was? It was one of the it's on that chair there, I think. It's that's kind of Beetle. No, that's not Beetle. That's a chubby one. That is Beetle. She's put weight on. Oh. She's put loads of weight on since she's had the babies. That's good. That's lovely anyway, Beetle. she came in. And she's then... my favourite since Morrissey died. God rest yeah. his little cat soul. And then I let her in because I thought, don't not let her in. It's cold outside. But then I was like, she's going to wake me up really early in the morning. Did she? she? Like, yeah. How? More meowing. More meowing. What you seem to see is mouth knocks. <laughs> So to get down off the ladder in the dark and the letter out. Do you see human words as mouth knocks? But human communication. Knock, knock. <laughs> it was door. knocking with its mouth. Do you mean meowing? Yeah. <laughs> right. So when people are talking, do you think they're knocking Only at the if door? Only trying of... to get in somewhere. Oh. So you were up there. You had to come and clambering down. Yeah, in the dark down on the ladder. Yeah. Did you mind it? No, I've gotten really good at it. Have you got a technique? Yeah. Go on then. Tell me oh, about climbing up spine. But there's these metal poles on the left, so you can wrap your hand around it, uh -huh. when you, especially when you're getting down, So because it's a bit wobbly. I got beaten up bad in jiu-jitsu, Jen. I feel terribly weak. In the face? Not in the face, in the whole body, Jenny. Like By a young Ryan, handsome Ryan. He gave me such beat downs. He's a purple belt like me, but unlike me, he's 30. And also, unlike me, he's been a, he's a better purple belt than I am. And he gave me such a smash down. Oh, I mean... At first, I was sort of holding my own. At first. Then, as I grew tired, Ryan grew stronger. It's a tough. A lot of things hurt, like my toes, my whole body, my hands. Why is it your feet that hurt? I suppose you're sc scrambling <laughs> you're around. The ball of your foot and your toes. <laughs> my feet are getting a real pounding, Jen. Anyway, look, just listen to Shoshana Zuboff. Shoshana Zuboff is interesting in my view. You know, you'll hear in a minute because she is chronicling the advent of the digital age, how it has metastasized into a form of capitalism that we are simply not prepared for, how digital surveillance is a sort of an omnipresent force that is mining consciousness itself. You get the rest of it listening to yourself. You're intelligent people. Have a little listen. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the skin. Professor Shoshana, may I interview you? Shoshana, please. <laughs> Yes, please. What are we talking about? <laughs> well, well, yeah. What are we going to talk about? Firstly, thank you for coming on Under the Skin. Thank you for inviting me. I've enjoyed our preliminary conversation about that great English genius, Chris Morris. And now 
Uh, and uh, it doesn't surprise me that you found affinity with such um, a mind with such um, acuity and uh, plasticity and insight. Uh, I enjoy the work of yours with, uh, that I am familiar with. And in Under the Skin and a lot of the content that um, we make, our interest is in the way that power operates, the impossibility of penetrating systems of power. And... I suppose, really, given that there is a kind of, not only do we have a saturation of social media, we also have a saturation of social media criticism. And sometimes it's, it's almost, <laughs> it's entered that phase where it feels like one of those, a problem of such ubiquity that we have no choice but to kind of accept it, that kind of, um, like we're kind of almost numb to it. And this numbness, of course, is a sort of a key component of the social media experience. So um, could you please remind us just how nefarious is social media? What do you mean by surveillance capitalism? And if you could just outline for us, even though I know I'm asking you a question that could potentially take you the rest of your life to answer, could you just outline uh, for us what the... Uh, key areas of concern are to rev to peak once more our outrage. Okay, well, you know, I, I appreciate kind of the spirit of your question because it is a um, a forever effort to find the right way to communicate in order to engage the imaginations and the spirit, the values of our peoples. And, um, and uh, starting right here in this room with me, um, it's so easy to become habituated. And it's so easy for all, all of these very new things, unprecedented in human history things, it's so easy for them to become normalized. And let me just tell you why, because you began with this theme of, you know, it's everywhere and it seems so inevitable. And like, how do, how do we really, you know, get over that hill? So here's what I would like our, our listeners uh, to understand. 20 years into this invention of surveillance capitalism, it began in 2000, 2001 at Google as the discovery of a really fast way to monetize data. Okay, so let's call that an economic logic. It began as this economic logic that they figured out, depended on technology and data, but it was an economic logic. And uh, they applied it, they made a ton of money. We can go into those, those details if you like. But now 20 years later, and, and the way I should really say this is that in only 20 years, Russell, this thing has morphed from an economic logic that began at one tiny little startup and then eventually migrated to another tiny little startup called Facebook, so from Google to Facebook. Well, this thing has morphed into what can only be understood as a sweeping political, economic, institutional order. Now, I know those are a lot of syllables, but what I'm saying is 
this this thing has been successful because of its political utilities and accommodations. It is fundamentally um, a new form of economics, surveillance economics, and it has become an institution. I'm unpacking each of these words. By an institution, that means that it's not just one company or you know, one set of, of leaders, and it's certainly not just technology. What it is, is a kind of social order that bridges individuals, bridges communities, bridges whole societies, bridges nations. It, it is a, uh, you know, picture it as a kind of umbrella architecture that encompasses all of these little distinctions, economic sectors, individual corporations, and so forth. And of course, nations themselves. So we put that all together. We have a um, sweeping global political, economic, institutional, social order and order that has reorganized our uh, most fundamental and might I say even subliminal, and this gets to the habituation piece, the sense of it's inevitable. Um, it has reorganized that most tacit, that most, you know, um, almost a subliminal subconscious uh, layer of our reactions to everything in society now. Uh, because whether we're after social participation, political participation, economic participation, whether I'm getting my test results from the doctor's office, whether I'm getting my kids' grades from the school, uh, whether I'm organizing dinner plans with family and friends, every interface with any aspect of the digital milieu, whether it's on my phone, on my laptop, or walking through the village or on a city street, wherever that interface is, we are marching through the institutional terrain of surveillance capitalism. So the final thing I wanna say about this and why it's ultimately so important is, you know, in sociology, which is one of the fields that, that I, I study, um, there's a, some, an area called institutional theory. So there are a lot of people who just think about, you know, what is an institution and what are its hallmarks and how does it grow and how does it stay there? The, the most important feature of an institution, the thing that makes an institution an institution is that people experience it as inevitable. That is really important. There is no institution that is inevitable. Institutions are made by people. Anything made by people can be unmade by people. It's not always easy, but that is fact. And that essentially is the, is the story of human history. The making and unmaking and remaking and unmaking 
of our institutional lives. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, As I understand your explanation, it's almost as if the potency of this new set of tools uh, is uh, not an amplification of a previous rubric, but almost a new genome and has somehow combined at the level of attention, almost the level of consciousness, because it is um, so essential at the point of impact, as you said, it's sort of in its multivalence, that it's at the point in which we might look at every aspect of our lives, that, um, that, 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 that there is no sort of predecessor to it. It's not just, oh, well, capitalism has always been like this, and this is now they've just got a new set of tools and they're able to operate more effectively. It's no different than various other advances of the last 200 years. It's something is something discreet from that. And then I liked what you said about institutions. I've never heard that explanation before. That's really cool. That is this is something inevitable and infrangible about them. And what I feel there is that it is vital to observe that we are dealing with something that's conceptual, that's passed through the consciousness of human beings into you know what we commonly call reality and it is therefore it's on that terrain that it can be it, it, it can be addressed and dealt with do you think that given that it was birthed out of a the, the, this previous set of institutions the you know its immediate predecessors all of which that it has frankensteined into some horrifying new reality that the institutions that midwifed it into reality are going to have the facility or even the will to um impede let alone demonopolize these uh institutions that you have described Okay, good question. So um, let me just let me take a, a, a little, um, you know, a little moment to sort of explain the, the highlights of surveillance capitalism, what makes it different? Uh, and, and also, wh- uh, what makes it the same? So and, and then um, let's ask ourselves, uh, you know, is this, is this thing so powerful that it's going to be, you know, taken for granted as our reality for the next hundred years for the rest of the digital century or, or what? Uh, so I really like your question, you know, is this a new genome or is this somehow a, a continuation of capitalism? And the answer is both. Surveillance, capitalism. Why are those Why are those two words smashed together? Uh, not for melodrama, but for a very technical point. So, capitalism, which is many centuries old, has typically evolved by finding things that live outside the market dynamic and bringing them inside the market dynamic, turning them into things that can be sold and purchased. Those things are called commodities. So famously, you know, we most of us have studied at one point or another industrial capitalism, you know, all the years of the growth of the factories and labor and, um, you know, mid 19th century distinguished Britain, of course, um, as a leader in the world. So 
what did industrial capitalism do? Well, it found, you know, the meadows and the forests and the rivers, and it uh, brought them into the market dynamic and it turned them into real estate, land that could be sold and purchased, and it turned them into uh, sources of energy. Uh, running rivers became sources of energy. And um, in general, nature itself was commandeered for the marketplace to be sold and purchased. And that, that was the source of raw material for industrial capitalism's power and wealth. Change the world. So here we are tootling along into the 21st century. It's the digital century now. And most people in economics think, what's gonna to happen to capitalism? Because there's nothing left to be commodified. Everything that could be bought and sold is already being bought and sold. And it's pretty ugly, but it's true. So what the heck is capitalism gonna do? How is it ever gonna evolve again? So. Here we are in the year 2000, and um, you know now suddenly there's this thing called data, and uh, there are all these new little companies in Silicon Valley that figure they're gonna they're gonna make money on data, but they don't know how. Why? Because there is nothing to sell. There's nothing to bring into the market and turn into a commodity. So picture these uh, young guys sitting around, you know, uh, we're going down. It's the dot-com bust. We're going down. Everybody's giving up. Everybody's going bankrupt. Even at Google, where, um, you know, they had very swanky venture capital investors and they were super smart guys. And everybody said they had the best search engine. Their investors were threatening to pull out because these young men could not find a way to monetize data, not quick enough for investors. So um, one day, and it really wasn't exactly one day, it was a little bit of a process, but you know, it happened in some over a period of, of months, they figured out that from uh, traces of people's browsing and searching activity, these behavioral traces that were left over in their servers. They had some folks who were playing around with these data traces left over in the servers. They considered it waste material, it was called digital exhaust. And they figured out that by systematically using these leftover traces of people's browsing and searching, they could come up with predictions of what kind of keywords these folks would look at and of you know, how long they would look and whether or not they would click on those pages to find more information, things like that. In other words, they could start to predict people's behavior online as they searched. And um, suddenly the breakthrough came, Russell, and it was completely different, but kind of the same as another century. But what made this completely different is that they suddenly understood that human behavior, human behavior could become the next virgin wood. 
the next completely um, unorganized territory that could be dragged into the marketplace and systematically uh, manufactured, which is to say computed, turned into predictions of people's behavior. And those predictions could be sold and purchased and that every advertiser would want them. Because what advertiser would not prefer to know exactly <laughs> who's most likely to look at my ad, you know, rather than just throwing that, that ad all over the place in magazines and newspapers, fingers crossed, you know, folks are going to look at it, read it, pay attention. Google came up with the Holy Grail in their black box. And they went to advertisers and said, all we want to do is revolutionize your industry. All we want you to do is sell your soul to our black block. <laughs> Let me take that again. All we want you to do is sell your soul to our black box. We're going to compute, you know, like in, um, in the uh, restaurant at the end of the universe, when they finally get there, there's that big computer and it spits out the, uh, the secret of all life and, uh, and, and, the, and the message is 42. Well, it's kind of like that, you know, the, the computer gives the answer. It tells the advertisers essentially where to place their bets, where to put their ads. And it tells them, you put your ads where we tell you to, and more people are going to click on it. More people are going to click through to your, to your website. We can't tell you how we do it. We're not going to tell you how we do it. You just have to sell us your soul. Uh, forget about choosing uh, keywords. Forget about putting your ads ads where, where it's consistent with your brand values. Uh, we're going to tell you what to do. And if you follow the computer, you're going to make more money. That was how this whole thing was born. And there's this wonderful, um, it's actually a book, fellow named Douglas Edwards, who was Google's first brand manager. And in his book, he has this recollection of Larry Page stating this insight for the first time. And the question, they're sitting around the table, literally, and they're saying, well, what business is Google in? Like, how do we even describe Google to the world? And Larry Page, who was one of Google's founders with Sergey Brin, Larry Page ruminates on this question and he says, this is the year 2001. He says, if we did have a category, a business category, it would be personal information because everything that you do, everything that you say, everywhere that you go, every place that you've been, every aspect of your experience is going to be searchable indexable, we will be able to know it all. And at that moment, it became clear that while Google was marketing itself as a search engine, Russell, and we thought that we searched Google, even as early as 2001, those young men understood 
that they had to reverse the entire process, that it was not user searching Google, it was Google searching users. The search engine worked in reverse, and that was the source of its breakthrough insight that founded surveillance capitalism because they understood right from the start that they could not do this in a way that people would be aware of, that it had to be hidden because users would not allow themselves to be searched and lawmakers would be triggered into passing privacy laws. And so right from the start, they had something that they called the hiding strategy. Famously, if you've ever been to Google headquarters over in Mountain View, California, in the lobby, there is this, um, this kind of ticker tape and it, it's a constant viewing of things that are going through the search engine right at that moment, right? So Russell Brand's podcast and uh, Weather Tomorrow and all, all, all of the things, you know, the, 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 um, the good, the bad, and the ugly that people search on. And Douglas Edwards recounts how, again, Larry Page wanted them to dismantle that ticker tape in the lobby because he was afraid that it gave away too much of what Google could actually be learning about from everybody's searching activities. And he didn't want anyone to have any idea, not citizens and not lawmakers, of exactly how much data they were able to gather and how much they were able to learn about us and predict about us from uh, analyzing, computing those data. This is, the, this is the birthplace of artificial intelligence as currently used today. So, um, so surveillance, this surveillance piece, Russell, is wholly digital century unimaginable without the digital, unimaginable without digital technology, that, that we produce data, human generated data, that we leave traces behind, that they can find them, that they can analyze them. All of that is unprecedented. What else is unprecedented? That, that this kind of data surveillance would be applied to aspects of our experience that until the year 2000, we considered to be private. So secretly, they invaded and extracted aspects of human experience that everyone believed were private. And because they did it in ways that were hidden, and even if you happened to find them, they were indecipherable, inscrutable, you could never know about it. Nobody knew about it. Nobody understood it. And so even though there is continuity with the history of capitalism, commodification, they did it in a way that was unimaginable literally before the year 2000. 
And that is what has allowed them to bamboozle, confuse, gaslight their way through 20 years, um, confusing and misdirecting lawmakers around the world as well as citizens. And only now, it's really only in the past approximately three to four years, Russell, that the world is waking up to the atrocities that have been committed now, not just at the very beginning, which is the original sin, but all through the various milestones that have been reached, the stages of evolution across these 20 years is a mounting narrative of atrocity and tragedy. And I'll complete the thought with one final sentence that moves back to your original question. Why should we care? Why should we be aroused? Why should we be mobilized? Why should we be indignant? And the reason is that this new institutional order has always been and is now on a collision course with democracy. Democracy is the only existing institutional order with the countervailing authority, with the requisite power to obstruct, to contradict, to outlaw surveillance capitalism. Firstly, um, you're breathtakingly charming and you tell stories in a beautiful manner. Thank you for both <laughs> of those things. Um, see these new Prosperos, this priesthood in this intangible cathedral of new esotericism impenetrable due to the the books are inaccessible to all but this new priesthood and as you have described malfeasance was there as the original sin oh no if they know what they're doing if they know what we're doing they're gonna stamp this out fast so there is no sort of denial of culpability or intent there i'm reminded of the vedic notion of i think i'm saying this right the caustic records that all things that we think and do are somehow scored by the universe ethereally recorded and that this now our neurological activity and significantly our behavior is uh, mapped and recorded and as you said indexed and um, I remember hearing maybe God 30 years ago that uh, and it, it made me shudder then that it was the intention of the Coca-Cola company to have it that wherever you were in the world, you'd better reach out your hand and grab a can of Coke from some dispensary. <laughs> now that sounds like the most, oh, you sweet, adorable people were selling us that fizzy drink <laughs> that we might just as well use to clean a toilet. Now they've reached this um 
unimaginable point of saturation now like after your a wonderful enjoyable charming story uh, delightfully peppered with occasional mentions of my name knowing as you surely must on some level that I remain an entertainer and, and require the odd tag or poke no matter how brilliant you're being uh, we looped right back to a, one of the sort of areas of inquiry in my admittedly caroming initial question that uh, how can we depend upon the institutions that facilitate and in the sort of darker corners of the very internet that we're discussing some people believe funded created participated with certainly now there's doubtless alliance facilitation allegiance with democratic and congressional institutions and how frankly could there not be and i enjoy yes your um your optimism uh, uh, about democracy and adam curtis who sort of like is not unlike um chris morris who we talked about in many ways in terms of his perspective you know he says a few things Sometimes he said, he said to me one time, you know, all there really are these powerful institutions um, are, are advert. You know, all they're doing is advertising. It's not particularly sort of novel. The technology is ingenious, and the point to which they are doing it is unprecedented. But they're not. It's not alchemy. Um, like, and and then he said um, too. He sort of remains sort of unlike myself sometimes optimistic about democracy. I mean, the democracy, the word and its definition in a in a dictionary, terrific stuff, wonderful. Pat on the back all round. <laughs> Thank you, ancient Greece. But when it uh, comes to its application, this is not something that fills me with joy because you know I've got a TV set and like I've been watching what happens and how these things unfold. So um, when we're dealing with sort of two. Uh, you know, God, when I like, cause I somewhat regard these things spiritually because I sometimes feel the only way out is in. If we're dealing with attention, and attention is, you know, consciousness, the very essence of being. And if we're dealing with behavior, the idea that we can be sort of moderated, managed, uh, controlled to that degree, I feel like, well, well, at what point do we as individuals have? power then only at this point of attention and perhaps that's always been such perhaps it's perhaps this is just a revelation perhaps this is just uh, um, demonstrating to us this is this is reality the only power you have is the power of your your singular will your the, the it, it happens at this point that that, that sort of uh, at the point of the burning bush at the point where you emerge from the nothingness you're you know that's the only point where you have power um i feel and i'm interested here like when i saw this thing you've been called the karl marx of our time and i thought oh wow yeah no i get that now i got that about three minutes in and both of you have fantastic hair let's face it and like i i i feel like um like obviously you know marxism is a critique of industrial capitalism and what you're offering us is a or have offered us thus far even in this bloody conversation is a wonderful critique of um you know like of this new emergence you know 20 year old surveillance capitalism and of course, now what we're sort of moving towards, after all, this is a one hour long podcast. And I think we'd both be disappointed if we didn't emerge with a, a new modality for overthrowing these powerful institutions. How do we <laughs> as individuals and collectives uh, establish our own uh, rubric to, to, as you say, countervail this um terrifying potency and do you have any hope that the uh you know once again that the democratic institutions that are currently in place and that seem you know as you indicated again with your fingers there are sort of enmeshed combined interlinked interwoven uh how, how do we as free individuals intersect uh that narrow commissure wow okay um 
that was that was so great. And I say your name because uh, you're there and I'm here. And um, I like it. I, I do. I do so much work like this. I like to feel connected to the person I'm speaking with. Mm. And I say your name. I'm writing yours down. Um, I, mean, I don't know if that is that strange. <laughs> So, uh, look, in a way, I mean, let's talk about, you know, why, why feel skeptical about uh, the capabilities of our lawmakers to get us out of this mess, in part because they got us into this mess. And that happened on September 11th, 2001. So what happened on that day in my country, uh, in Washington, D.C., if you were on Capitol Hill on September 10th, 2001, and the subject of the internet came up, all of the conversation was about um, whether there should be privacy legislation. Most people thought there should be federal privacy legislation. And the conversations were about you know how the, the, the sort of breadth and uh, and seriousness of that privacy legislation, how far should it go? Those were the those were the controversies. Those were the debates, and there were there was a, a a powerful document that was already being circulated in Washington with the Federal Trade Commission's recommendations for federal a bill for uh, federal privacy legislation. That was the conversation. On September 11th, 24 hours later, everything changed. And according to um, scholars and politicians and people who were on the Hill at that, at that time, literally the conversation shifted 180 from what kind of privacy legislation to the subject of total information awareness. And because the war on terror was declared, because the Bush administration did not choose to pursue it under criminal law, but under this you know, vast rubric of intelligence gathering and uh, behavioral monitoring and tracking and all of the rest, And by the way, Washington was not alone. Uh, the UK was right by their side, as was um, uh, almost every democratic country. Uh, it, the intelligence agencies of almost every democratic society were involved with this, either right at the beginning or eventually. And so bulk collection <laughs> became the order of the day. And... Um, And this is what I call surveillance exceptionalism. These same activities that I described to you, what was being invented at Google, there is a reasonable probability, history offers no control groups, but a reasonable probability that had 9-11 not occurred or had our reaction to 9-11 been quite different, um, that everything that they were doing at Google Uh, would have been illegal, would have been made illegal, even under the the um, even under the the nature of this um, 
early privacy legislation that was already in circulation. Uh, it would have been illegal, but we never got that. So as a result, surveillance capitalism suddenly had room to root and to flourish. And if we had to give one, you know, there are many reasons why it has been able to become uh, this vast institutional order in only 20 years. How has it become so successful? And, uh, you know, I could list 20 reasons, but I won't. But if I had to say what's the what's at the you know the the top of the charts here what is the single most significant reason that accounts for its success it would be the absence of law it would be the void that our democratic leaders left our our democracies never really you know put their, their uh, thinking caps on to, to ask themselves the question, how do we preserve democracy in a digital century? What does a democratic digital century look like? And how do we translate that into the rules of the road for how digital technologies are designed and deployed? We never got that. Now, is such a thing possible? Yes, all you have to do is look over to China because the Chinese, at least, what, since 2010, at least, um, the Chinese Communist Party, Chinese leaders have been intensely involved in a, a, a theory and practice of the digital age in, in a way that advances their form of government, which is authoritarian government. And so they have learned how to create this surveillance state, but not only is it central to their um, you know, domestic policy, it's central to their foreign policy. So they send out teams to various countries and in virtually every, every area of the world, every region, and, and you've got the technology packages and you've got the people to um, train civil servants how to use those technologies for population surveillance, and you're training leaders. They're training leaders in those countries uh, for how to use the, these data flows to augment, sustain, and ultimately cement autocratic leadership. So the Chinese figured this piece out. And uh, this has everything to do with why now that they have these very powerful data companies, they are annexing those data companies to the state. But uh, our, our democratic leaders did not do the same. We don't know, we haven't yet figured out how do we, how do we put the digital to work to advance democracy, to advance a democratic digital future. So, in that void, of course, you're interested in power and you know power fills a void. And this is how surveillance capitalism was able to grow so aggressively and intensively because it filled the void that our lawmakers left behind. Now, as I said right at the beginning, uh, anything made by people can be unmade by people. So even though there is cause for some cynicism and um, 
and those little whispers of despair, I would say, um, I would say, don't succumb to that. Here's the way I think about it. Uh, I try to think like an historian, uh, which is which is not always helpful. You know, when you're, for example, my friend Maria Reza, uh, who lives in the Philippines and is a courageous journalist telling the truth from her perch in Manila, trying to save democracy, the prospect of democracy in her beloved uh, Philippines, um, constantly under attack from disinformation from the autocratic government and, uh, and, and the, now the, the Marcos team that wants to take power uh, from Duterte, the current um, dictator. Um, you know, she's, uh, she's uh, under attack all the time and is really looking for urgent solutions, things that are going to help today, this morning, right now. But for us to be able to maintain our optimism, um, we need to think a little bit in the long view because surveillance capitalism is playing the long game. Ultimately, its long game is to substitute its computational governance along with its authority and its power for democratic governance and democratic authority and democratic power. That's the long game here. Now, if we think about the failures of our democracy, well, that's easy because practice never lives up to theory. <laughs> it's just how it is. Theory has to be, um, theory has to be, um, you know, theory has to flow through human beings. Human beings are imperfect vessels. Uh, and uh, so the practice is never going to come out as good as the theory, as good as our ideals. Okay, we know that. But democracy is still the best idea that humanity has come up with in all of these many centuries and millennia. And even the imperfect practice of democracy puts us so far ahead of any other historical period, Russell, uh, where, uh, you know, where so many people were enslaved, where uh, so many people were simply chattel, where there were no rights, uh, where people were uneducated, where there was no science. I mean, it is really democracy and the ideals behind democracy that changed all of that. So um, we have every reason to be optimistic. And what I see happening now is that, um, first of all, many people are mobilized. And I'd, I'd like to tell you a little bit about that in a moment. But many people, ordinary folks, citizens around the world are mobilized. We have activist groups and advocacy groups that we never had before. In fact, there are a lot of people who are actually, you know, working on those very urgent solutions to the kinds of problems that uh, Maria Reza faces on a daily basis. Um, but we also now have many people who are engaged in the long-term solutions that we need, which ultimately, necessarily, and inevitably involve new law. We need new charters of rights. 
We need new legislative frameworks and we need a whole range of new public institutions to oversee the governance and enforcement of those rights and laws. Now, is this crazy? No, how do I know that? Because this is exactly what we did a century ago. Going back to industrial capitalism, right? Huge concentrations of corporate power, huge concentrations of capital and huge economic harms being produced by all of that uh, power. Those economic harms fell primarily upon people in their economic roles, workers and consumers. And let's remember that going into the industrial age in industrial society, there were no workers' rights and there certainly were no consumers' rights. So, you know, employers had all of the power by virtue of their property rights. I own the factory, I set the rules and the working conditions and the hours that you work and what you paid and whether or not you're you know, exposed to chemicals or other processes that are gonna kill you, uh, all of those things, all of those things were unilaterally determined by employers. And if nothing had been done, if democracy had not responded, then the 20th century would have been a century of oligarchy and serfdom. There would have been no liberal democracy. There would have been nothing like the, the century that, that, uh, that we ended up having as the 20th century with um, huge gains in standard of living and huge gains in equality, nothing perfect. But what did we end up doing? We ended up passing complex laws that gave workers rights and created some kind of balance of power between labor and capital, the right to strike, the right to join a union, the right to bargain collectively, and all the rights that went with that, working conditions, et cetera, et cetera, pay, working hours, all of it. And then we also went to work on consumers' rights. They're not allowed to say anything on a label and sell you poison and tell you it's gonna make your hair grow. No longer legal, right? They're not allowed to just, uh, you know, um, you know, give you some kind of medicine and tell you it's gonna bring down your fever and, and, and have it turn your leg green. No longer legal. So over a period of time, we identified and institutionalized the rights, new rights never existed before, and new laws. And a whole range of public institutions, dozens of them, that oversee everything from, you know, what we eat and what medicines we take to the kind, you know, how our, our health care is administered to, um, all of our, our rights as employees and workers to uh, our, our rights as people who use banking institutions or who use uh, uh, the stock market or uh, who, um, you know, um, want to uh, preserve the environment or make sure there's clean water and clean air and institutions for all of it. You Those institutions human being. made industrial capitalism 
I'm sorry. What? <laughs> I said to you, magnificent. <laughs> I said to you, magnificent human being. I I recognise um, uh, the uh, narrative of progressivism and the advances that you've articulately described. Although I do, and you know, I know how language works, but these terms, workers and cons consumer um, and rights in those areas, for me, also uh, entail a framework that is despotic in that that is primary well that's you've described the two roles that most people have even people that live in you know relative comfort and also i i would say that uh, whilst you know the era of chattel was an unlovely one it was potentially preceded by you know like a millennia of different formations of society and uh, i feel like these this kind of um, native intelligence that precedes hegemony ought not be neglected now of course no one knows by definition what occurred in the uh, hundreds of thousands of years that we lived differently but my sense is that you know it evolved within us and alongside us preceding this period of utility and commodification preceding this critical point that you're describing where attention itself consciousness itself uh, our behavior our lives the uh, you know Foucaultian idea of biopolitics is now arrived and here and we are all being fed into the sausage machine at an alarming rate I feel that prior to these sort of neoliberal ideas and the sort of um the what do I want to call it the kind of uh the E, the panacea, the palliatives and tokens of gentle reform. I feel there is a great power waiting to be awakened and unlocked. And I do believe in the possibility for new institutions. And I do believe in ideas that sort of reach beyond localism and collectivism and what Adam Curtis, I know, would describe as what's your solution, Russell? We're all going to just sit around in a circle and eat vegetables. I know that we have to deal with the realities of a, a global society. But I feel, Shoshana, strongly that even if we are inventing a future that involves necessarily a, a, a new hegemonic in order to countenance this new neoliberal one, my feeling when you describe this you know, new slew of uh, rights is the rights that people are given are the bare minimum to prevent people mobilising in a radical and revolutionary way. My feeling is that in 2001, the reason that that legislation was made is because it ultimately was in the service of power. The reason that Google is not regulated is because ultimately they have the same intention, control. Control, you know, the roles that you used, workers, consumers. New, new legislation and new power serves governments. New legislation and new power serves corporations operations they have the same agenda the crisis of 2000 and we won the terrorism that's ultimately served them the financial crisis of 2008 ultimately served them the crisis of 2019 to 21 ultimately served them and to the point about unionization i recognize this is an improvement over a gulag and you know <laughs> you know thanks for that you know to the people that have granted that to us uh but, you know, people are still dying at Amazon now. People are still unable to unionize at Amazon now. So for me, there is a kind of I, my I feel quite 
fiercely opposed to incremental reformism because I feel that it is a kind of inoculation against against the necessary radicalism that needs to be engaged this power that we have because when you say you know that all of these institutions pass through human consciousness etc and therefore can be undone i feel that in all like that democracy theoretically fantastic in order for it to function as a because what is democracy is the idea that we all ought be included in a shared society and what underwrites that if you you know from a humanitarian um perspective there's these abstract ideas of rights but from a religious perspective which is how i'm coming at it there is a divine idea that we are one that we are sacred that the earth is sacred that we need to re-sacralize these spaces and interactions and i don't feel that the rhetoric and ideologies that preceded the current crisis have the necessary vitality to achieve these ends and i feel that by acknowledging the great power of uh, these new technologies and their potential utility when they could be conceptually altered and redirected by the by a better ideology by marrying this uh, present day to um, what I want to call sort of a kind of arcane idealism <laughs> and forgive the word of this for the use of this word but I'm using it deliberately a kind of folk mentality and a connection to who we are and a connection <laughs> to our land and who we might become then potentially we can overthrow but I don't think it's going to become come through sort of a, the sort of like the sort of milk sop insipid you know maybe the democratic party might oh Obama well he tried you know I feel like um no and no more <laughs> no more playing to those people yeah well you know I, I mean I I think it's Russell, I, you know, I think it's important for, for you to uh, shout that and, and be passionate about that. And, and I agree that um, we have moved far from the uh, shared recognition of the divine spark in every human being. And the uh, sacralization, as you put it, of uh, each life. And, you know, each, each life of, of every human, each life of every animal and creature. Um, uh, yes, we all yearn to be infused with more of that and our children would be far happier and have been far happier even not going perhaps you know all, all the way to um you know adam's uh depiction of your ideal state um adam being another uh another person in this space whom i adore um but, but, you know, just recognizing that after five decades of neoliberalism as strained through the inimitable uh, uh, music of Reagan and Thatcher, that, um, you know, our children are no longer born into a society where the moment they're born, we say, hooray, 
Thank you for coming. We're so excited that you're here and we've got so much for you to do. Come join us. We love you. Every child deserves that. Every infant needs that. I believe in that. Having said that, you know, and that spiritual dimension of what we need to bring to each other in this in this future is um, is so important. Uh, it can't be instead, however, of the political solutions. Because honestly, Russell, those the you know the spiritual solution when you're laboring under autocracy becomes something very different. You know, it, it becomes something that's really like fringe and full of despair and um, it can't it can't be realized under those conditions. So politics you, you 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 talked about power and the fact that hey you know we did this to counter power and power's back and we did that other thing to counter power and power's back that's exactly right that is that is the story of power power does not creep away with its tail between its legs and says oh gosh i i guess i'll have to give up for you know a, a century or a millennia or whatever no power just uh, receives a little bit, you know, twirling that mustache and just cooking up where and how it's going to get back in and how quickly. That is power. That is power, fundamentally. So what you're describing is, um, you know, especially over, over this last long period, this last long winter of neoliberalism uh, and economics, actually uh, the, the most fundamental precepts of that economics, you know, designed by a sort of philosopher economist, Friedrich Hayek, who longed for a return to aristocracy as the preferred form of society. <laughs> And everything else followed from that, you know, although hardly anybody ever connected the, the dots back to this uh, twisted purpose, if you will, in this philosopher's mind. Um, so, yeah, our, our institutions, our democratic institutions have been systematically weakened for five decades, and it has been... Um, you know, the belief that markets solve all problems, including all social problems, and, uh, and democratic political institutions were forced to recede, in part because of ideology, in part because their resources were, were diminished quite dramatically uh, in favor of, quote, you know, small government. So um, we, we have through all of this um, um, weakening of democratic institutions for several decades now, you know, we're not starting out with great strength. It is true. We're starting out with American democracy on the ropes. We're starting out with British democracy on the ropes. Um, uh, and, and, 
and in both cases and in many, many more cases, democracy is uh, under attack largely because of the ways that surveillance capitalism uh, has given over the information and communication spaces uh, to profit maximization. And autocracy turns out to be, autocracy and disinformation turn out to be very profitable in these online spaces because they're grotesque and weird and bizarre and shocking and they draw a lot of engagement. Engagement means you can uh, extract more data from people because they're sitting around longer and giving you more stuff. So it's all really good for business. And uh, so all of these pieces that we've been talking about are connected and they're all feeding on one another and they're all making things worse. So this is, this is what I call the tragedy of the uncommons. The idea that we had these spaces that were supposed to be public, our information and communi communication spaces. Uh, but over these last 20 years, they have, um, they have very quickly become owned and operated by a very specific kind of institution, surveillance capitalism, which now intermediates everything that we want to do in these information and communication spaces, uh, intermediates it with their profit maximizing action. So we're not in the strongest place to be uh, having to fight back, but this is the paradox of the moment and we've got to find our way through it. Democracy is under siege, period. Democracy is the only institutional order capable of ending this siege, period. That's not a contradiction, it's a paradox and we've got to find our way through it. I believe there are three conditions that are essential and I believe there is evidence that these conditions are starting to constitute themselves. And I'm just gonna throw that out uh, for your next uh, volley. <laughs> and, and that is, um, the first thing is that we need publics who are getting aware, getting savvy, getting angry, being indignant, saying this is intolerable and mobilizing. There are now data that indicate this kind of public awakening is well underway. You know, going into pandemic, the tech guys were out there bragging about how the pandemic was going to be the end of TechLash. TechLash didn't have a very long life. You know, it sort of got going with Cambridge Analytica 2018, hopefully gathered some steam with my book in 2019 and the contributions of many, many other uh, scholars and citizens and lawmakers uh, and artists. Uh, and here we are 2020 in pandemic and Eric Schmidt says, well, you know, former CEO of Google, Eric Schmidt says, well, this is gonna be the end of uh, tech lash. Everybody's gonna be depending on us. And now everyone's gonna realize that they should really be just a little bit more grateful to our companies. <laughs> That's a quote, <laughs> a little <laughs> bit more grateful. <laughs> nice. That's a quote, I couldn't make that one up. Um, 
Well, that's exactly the opposite of what's happened, Russell, because in fact, in lockdown and in our dependency on these companies for just about everything that we do, including what you and I are doing now, um, we became angrier. We became more indignant. And I'm not saying this as a clinical impression. I'm saying this based on the survey data, uh, substantial survey data that's been coming out steadily over the past two years. Most recently, uh, early fall 2021, we had a, a very important survey, very lengthy, very extensive, commissioned by, uh, by a, a, a committee devoted to looking at technology and the democratic future in uh, Washington, DC, a committee set up by the White House. And um, in this survey, this is very interesting. There is a whole range of the survey where there were statements and you just had to say how much you agreed or disagreed with the statement. There was one statement that won more agreement than any other statement in about, I don't know, 13 or 14 pages of statement after statement after statement about all kinds of things. This statement read, I'm gonna paraphrase, but this is the gist of it. It said, um, it should be illegal uh, for private companies to collect personal data uh, from people uh, without their knowledge. It should be illegal, the word illegal. Now, I guarantee you in the year 2018, we would not have gotten, uh, we would have gotten a big plurality, but not a majority. In the year 19, we would have gotten a, a, a healthy majority, especially by the end of, of 2019. Maybe, maybe 60, 65, 70%. In 2021, 93% of the people who took this survey, a representative sample of America, 93% agreed with that statement. More people agreed with that statement than any other statement in the survey that were about all kinds of things. This is an extraordinary shift. So what we're seeing going back to our discussion about inevitability, even as recently as 2016, 17, 18, things that were considered settled, inevitable, undiscussable, are now being discussed. That aura of inevitability is crumbling. It is no longer taken for granted that these things are settled. That is why, as we speak right now in Brussels, we have committees of uh, members of the European Parliament who are gathered around um, getting ready for a final vote tomorrow on a critical game-changing piece of legislation, the Digital Services Act. Uh, and they are considering amendments to this act, one of which will quote, ban surveillance advertising. Surveillance advertising is not all of surveillance capitalism but it is the 
belly button of surveillance capitalism, the oxus mundi, the original navel of surveillance capitalism. And, um, and interestingly enough, yesterday, yesterday, um, there were, there was um, a bill, a new bill, a new piece of legislation announced coming out of Capitol Hill in Washington, DC. Congresswoman Eshoo, who by the way, represents Silicon Valley, Congresswoman uh, Jan Schakowsky and Senator Cory Booker, all sponsoring a piece of legislation called the bill to ban surveillance advertising. Again, something that would have been considered impossible three years ago. So the three conditions that we need to get change, we need switched on publics, we need lawmakers who finally really get what the heck is going on and, and develop the courage to stand up to it, which includes saying no to Google money and Facebook money and Amazon money and all the rest, Microsoft money, Apple money. And finally, we need transatlantic first and ultimately transnational collaboration. And there is evidence that all three of these conditions are starting to constitute themselves. Public attitudes and willingness and eagerness to mobilize. Lawmakers need to feel the public at their backs. For too long, the only people knocking on their doors have been the lobbyists. So if you all are listening to this, what I wanna say is look to the person to your left and to your right. If you're in school, maybe that's a fellow student, maybe it's a fellow worker, uh, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's the person that you're chatting with on Zoom, it doesn't matter lock arms, create an organization, create a collective, give yourselves a name, start talking about surveillance capitalism and why this has to end before it gets too far down the road undermining democracy, undermining our institutions, undermining our personal autonomy, having too much influence over individual and collective behavior, getting us to think things and do things that we would not on our own think or do. So you wanna join forces, take your car, take a bus. As soon as the public health conditions allow, go visit your parliamentarian or your congressperson and tell them exactly what you want and what you think. Law, to outlaw these invasions that have produced the wholesale destruction of privacy, that have produced huge concentrations of knowledge and power in a small group of companies, that have produced misinformation and disinformation driven by profit maximization, and that ultimately have brought these companies toe-to-toe, head-to-head, mano-a-mano with democratically elected officials, telling them no, we are not going to uh, you know, tweak our Bluetooth on our operating system 
so that the very critical epidemiological systems of European governments can go to work uh, to actually use phones to help stop the pandemic. No, we're going to tell you a bunch of nonsense that Apple and Google are actually more private preserving than your own democratically elected officials. And uh, even though if if and when, because inevitably it's when we violate that that idea that we're going to preserve your privacy, there is no uh, information number to call. There is no emergency number to call. There is no email to write to. You have no voice and you have no choice because we change the operating system any way we want to any moment of any day. That is how we exercise power. So if right now we can get you to believe that like we're going to preserve your privacy and your government that's trying to save your life is not, well, you know, fool me once, okay, but fool me twice, folks, this has got to stop. There are innumerable examples. Google and Facebook in Australia. Facebook's uh, self-appointed oversight board, uh, toothless and funded by Facebook profits. Numerous examples of these companies now showing their end game, willing to go head to head with democratic institutions to increasingly, increasingly absorb governance functions and uh, the kind of authority and power that should only be given to people and institutions that we elect, where we have voice. Not that they're perfect, but we have voice and we have the machinery of democracy to get them out of power when we mobilize to do so. We have no such voice and no such power when it comes to the tech giants and their surveillance empires. So people are mobilizing, lawmakers need us, lawmakers are waking up and beginning to move in the right direction. And we are seeing the early seeds of transatlantic cooperation. Even this summer, we had member of parliament, Alexandra Giza from Germany, uh, Congresswoman Lori Trahan, doing a shared event, Russell, you know, online, anybody could tune in. Uh, and what was their, their event? The title of their event was uh, how to ban surveillance-based advertising, right? And here, so here we have lawmakers from, from uh, each government now talking together, working together, thinking together Banning surveillance advertising is the beginning, not the end. To get where we need to go, which is fundamentally to stop the commodification of human behavior, to make that illegitimate extraction from our lives, we have to make it illegal. That's ultimately what we have to do on uh, the supply side. On the demand side, what we have to do is we have to bring an end to markets that trade in predictions of our behavior. These are human futures markets. They're trading in futures of human behavior the way other commodity markets trade in 
futures of sugar or wheat or oil or pork bellies. And what we now understand is that they provide the financial incentives that continue to drive the expansion of the extraction of human data. So we hit on the supply side and we make extraction illegal. We hit on the demand side and we make these markets illegal, just as at one point in history, we made it illegal to sell slaves. We made it illegal to sell organs. Again, nothing is perfect, but if it's illegal, we can fight it. And right now, as I said at the beginning, the, one, the foremost reason for the success of this illegitimate, extractive economic and political order that has and is disfiguring our lives, even as it undoes our democracies, the number one reason for its success is the absence of law to stop it. However imperfect these laws are, once we have them, we can fight. It's so hard for us to fight what is not illegal, and we need to fight. Well, Shoshana, thank you so much for oh, that. The, that in this entire conversation has been beautifully informative and enjoyable. It's been a wonderful ride to follow you through your vocabulary and your insights, and sometimes just to allow my attention to settle on your hair just for a few moments to provide variety. Thank you so much for your time. I'm not surprised that you've um, achieved rapport with the great mind of Chris Morris because you're, it's, it's such a joy to communicate with you. Thank you. Oh, Russell, it's been a pleasure. It's, it's so great to be able to have a, a, a serious conversation that is also imaginative and in-depth. And um, I've done so many events and conversations, but very few like this, so... Oh, thank thank you. you for that, Russell. I hope I get to see you soon. I hope we get to spend time together one day. I'll, uh, if I get the opportunity, I will certainly um, um, mention this encounter to Chris Morris and certainly to Adam Curtis, who I know will be flattered because in spite of his great intellect and um, apparent humility, he's a giant narcissist. <laughs> <laughs> well, Adam is, um, Adam is a brilliant mind and... We've we've had some good late nights in in London, uh, going through several bottles of wine, mm. and trying to figure things out. And I just I love his work, and and he's such a dear man. So, Thank yes, you. let's Shosh all get together and talk. God, well, that yeah, that would be bliss. Shoshana, that thank would be you. blessed. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. I'll be in touch with you um, and I'll let you know about these dates. And I do really hope we get to spend some time together. Thank you. I'd love that. Hope you enjoyed that episode of Under the Skin with Shoshana Zuboff. Let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. We'll read it out. Me and Jen go. Jen will choose it. So God help you. Uh, you can tag me at Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets with a hashtag under the skin. Remember, I'm on tour. Click on RussellBrand.com. If you want to see me in April, man, in like Glasgow, Nottingham, Newcastle, Hull, Scunny, you know, like a few weeks, I'm up in Scunny, uh, Brixton Academy towards the end of May, I think. So anyway, just look on there, see where I am. Come see me, you'll have a lovely time. If you ain't meditating yet, you should listen to Above the Noise and have a little meditate. It's a lovely, lovely little thing. Sign up to my community at russellbrand.com. Clink is my new word for click on the link. And if you enjoyed this episode, why not listen to Tristan Harris? Why? 
Social Dilemma and uh, Google. And also surveillance. Edward Snowden. Why? Surveillance and it being bad. <laughs> and keep checking, well done, Jen. And keep checking my YouTube video, no, YouTube channel for new videos. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary. <laughs>